Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Miles. The Building Excellence Podcast is all about sharing inspiring stories from some of the most successful athletes, coaches, business minds, and thought leaders to help you build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. We hope this show provides you with tremendous value. If you find the show impactful, please share with a friend and on social media, as well as subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Now let's get to the show and start building excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I've got the athletic director at Army West Point, Mike Buddy, with us today. So thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Bailey. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. If you wouldn't mind, just kind of give us some context of what life was like growing up for you. Yeah. So um, my upbringing probably drove me to every step in my career. Well, I guess that's true for everybody, right? But um, so I'm the youngest of three boys. I grew up in a uh, middle income family just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. So my my dad was a high school math teacher, my mom, high school English teacher um, until my oldest brother was born. And then my mom became a a stay-at-home mother. And so education was always kind of at the forefront of of everything that the buddy brothers um, were faced with. So you know, we had we had a football field lined in our driveway. We had a wrestling mat in our basement. We had a wiffle ball in the backyard, but we weren't allowed to do any of that stuff um, until our homework was done every day, no questions asked. And so, so we got in great study habits, right? Get home, no procrastination, do your homework. Um, so, so that was a, a nice, uh, a not so subtle plant that my parents had. And then, you know, being the youngest of three boys, you know, in a in a Catholic home in in Cleveland, Ohio. Like I got my ass kicked all the time, right? I was, (laughs) I got the elbows and again, with a wrestling mat in the basement, like it's, I was the the punching bag. And so I think that's really spurred my competitiveness, certainly my athleticism in terms of, you know, we were two years apart. So, you know, um, when I was five, my middle brother was seven, my oldest brother was nine. And so as they were starting to enroll in little league and pop Warner football, um, you know, I, I I kind of came along and found my way onto the teams. And so from a from a physical development and athleticism standpoint, um, I, I, I grew up comparing myself to kids who were two, three, four years older than I was, and I'm competitive as hell. And so like I was scratching and clawing. I, I expected to be as good, if not better than than any, everybody on my team. And then that light bulb goes off when I was like 13 and finally played in a, in a baseball league and a football league against other 13 year olds. And I'm just like, holy cow, like this all of a sudden is really easy. So, so that, you know, the academic piece and the athletic piece and the competitive landscape of, of growing up, uh, having to fight for the last Brownie kind of has shaped who I, who I am now. Absolutely. And you talked about your parents being, uh, you know, very influential in terms of making sure you're getting your studies accomplished each day before you get on athletics. You know, were they pretty involved in athletics too, growing up? Not nearly to the level that we were. Um, certainly, my mom was a was a ran track, and, and my dad dabbled in athletics, but um, not to the level that you know you would expect. Well, you know, a guy sure. makes, makes it to the major leagues as a baseball player. It wasn't like my dad played minor league baseball, but um, what they were involved in was coaching, right? So, um, and, and that makes a, a great impact because you know having a ride to practice every day. Um, I think my dad probably read a lot of books about pitching mechanics and things like that, just because he felt a responsibility, not only as a parent, but as a coach. So they were heavily involved as coaches, but they, they weren't, I would not say they had athletic um, 
backgrounds of their own. Sure, but they were tremendously supportive of you guys growing up in whatever endeavor you were in at the moment. Almost too supportive. I mean, it was <laughs> literally so. So, as a father of two children now, like um, neither of whom got overly involved in athletics, and and I think back, and I, I'm almost thankful for it because. Um, you know, in my current line of work, I work a lot of nights, a lot of weekends, and I would have missed a lot of t-ball and soccer. And um, but my parents, you know, as a as a as a high school math teacher, as I said, he took us, you know, three nights a week wrestling practice, five nights a week football practice, you know, six seven days a week in the summer playing baseball, and he he was able to do that. And my mom was the the chauffeur and you know carpools and all that good stuff. It was. Um, they were they were very supportive, and, uh, and I almost feel guilty now that I'm a, a parent of my own. Thinking, good grief! Like you guys never had time to yourself because you were always driving us yeah. to a tournament or a practice. Yeah, well, we won't test your calculus skills on here that way to see if you had some math uh, picked up from your dad. <laughs> so. you, can, you can test them all you want, brother. I'm not going to pass it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, you had tremendous supportive parents. You had uh, um, your siblings around you that were kind of pushing you in athletics. When did you start to gain a level of maybe confidence or understanding that you could play at another level? And, and what made you want to do that? Well, you know, confidence ebb, ebbed and flowed. Um, I, for whatever reason, um, I was just passionate about baseball. Uh, I believed in my ability. Um, it, I think it came the most natural to me, but it's also a sport where it's really kind of hard to, to stand out. And that sounds weird because Today you have, you know, JJ Huddle and Perfect Game and showcases and none of that existed in the 80s when I was growing up. And, and so ironically, you know, my middle brother uh, went to Stanford on a wrestling scholarship. I was I was a two time state champ in wrestling in Ohio and had all kinds of opportunities, but but I wasn't passionate about wrestling. Um, and I was a pretty good football player on a really good team and had some Big Ten schools interested. But. But probably from the time I was, you know, 13, 14, I just said, you know what, I want to be a major league baseball player. Um, but as a, as a kid in Cleveland, um, you know, we would, we would have a 16 game high school schedule and, you know, four or five of them would get snowed out. And so we, we would play a dozen games and then go to the playoffs. And so, you know, I, you never really knew how good you were on a national scale. I was, I was probably the best player on my high school team, one of the best in the Cleveland area, but you know, what does that mean? Because I know there's some really good baseball players in Texas and Georgia and California. And so um, for me, I would have confidence. I went into my senior year of high school. I was 10 and 0 as a pitcher, um, you know, hit third in the lineup, played shortstop when I wasn't pitching and thought I was pretty good. And I found myself a week after high school graduation with two baseball coaches that were, that, that had spoken to me at Kent State and Bowling Green. And, you know, Back to my upbringing, I had an older brother that went to Duke. My middle brother went to Stanford. Ironically, my mom went to Bowling Green. My dad went to Kent State. And I was thinking, I'm not going to be, you know, the black sheep. I'm not going to Bowling Green <laughs> or Kent State, even though both of them had great baseball programs at the time. And so I fell into an opportunity at Wake Forest and kind of made my own. But um, so, you know, I thought I was good in high school. And then I realized, well, I can't even get any Division One, you know, major colleges interested in me. So you're humbled there. I get to Wake Forest. I led the team in innings as a freshman. So confidence was high again. And, you know, then you, you pitch against Florida State as a junior and your confidence goes down again. And, um, but, you know, I had velocity. I had some athleticism. I had stayed healthy. And so, uh, you know, probably by the end of my freshman year at Wake Forest, I thought, you know, what, I, I think if I can stay healthy and continue to grow and, you know, I'm lifting weights now like a baseball player, not like a football player. And 
um, I thought I would have an opportunity to, to play professionally, but you never know. And you, you know, you don't let your guard down. You keep working your butt off to try to make sure you, you don't have any regrets. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously you had some, you know, some intangibles and some talent, obviously, but talk about when you got to Wake Forest, what were the things maybe behind the scenes that you had to do in order to really excel at a higher level in order to be able to go on and play major league baseball? Well, really it was, um, like all college athletes, I think prioritization is, is really important. You know, Wake is a really strong academic school. And so, you know, now as an athletic director, we talk about it all the time, right? Where, where do you spend the, the time to, to allow you to become the student that you want to be or need to be, um, to become the athlete that you want to be and need to be, and then to, to maintain a level of, of life balance and mental and spiritual and emotional well-being. And so, you know, I'm a social guy. I wanted to be able to go to parties on on the weekends, and uh, um, I knew I needed to to keep working hard to to graduate and all those things. And so, it was really kind of getting to college, having the opportunity. You know, I went to an all boys Catholic high school. I had to shave every day. They checked to see if my tie was tight and if I had shaved. And I had parents that said, "No, no wrestling until you do your homework." And then, you know, you find yourself as a freshman in college, five states away. Um, you know, walking around with a fake ID and, you know, thinking you're, you're cool stuff. And so you really kind of learn through that process. Hey, yeah, I, you know, you can go out every night, but you better, you better be able to, to do, do your homework and do all that other stuff. And so to me, it was just a combination. I had a, my first real pitching coach who kind of really talked to me about pitching, um, not the physical stuff, just how you think about it, how you approach hitters. I had some really good older teammates um, who, who, who were really good hitters and they would say, hey, here's what we look for when, when we're facing a pitcher. And so it helps you think about it from a completely different angle that I just never dawned on me in high school. And then the physical aspect of it, um, I had terrible nutrition habits, um, was forced to think about that a little bit more and recognize how your body feels after certain meals. And then lifting weights, again, as, as I alluded to, it's it's not upper body strength. It's as much flexibility as anything else. And so all of those things thrown together, uh, probably my freshman year at Wake Forest made me realize, okay, I have, a, I have a higher ceiling. And ironically, you know, talking about kids in Texas and California and Florida, like they were throwing 150 innings a year, every year from the time they were 12. And so it turns out growing up in the climate in Cleveland and being a three-sport athlete, I probably was throwing 60, 50 to 60 innings a year. And so physically the wear and tear on my arm as a pitcher was significantly lower when I got to college. And so I was, I was hitting my stride at the right time, I think. Yeah. And you could have been one of the first uh, baseball player slash wrestlers to ever, ever play if you would have taken up both. <laughs> hey, it's not too late. I might, not... I might come out of retirement in both. There you go. There you go. So obviously you have a great career at Wake Forest, you get drafted. What was it like being able to get drafted and see kind of all the hard work come to fruition into an opportunity to play professionally? Well, it was unbelievable, right? I mean, it's, it's literally a phone call that you dream about. You know, for me, I was probably six or seven when I started thinking, man, you know, watching the guys on TV thinking, man, if I could play for the Cleveland Indians, like life would be pretty good. And, and it's a long road from six years old to, to 21 when you get that phone call and um, you know, I will say this growing up in Cleveland, you know, we were not big Yankee fans. And so, you know, you spend, you spend draft day and again, it wasn't televised. There was no internet, right. We're just literally, I'm, I'm laying on the floor in my, my parents, uh, 
living room with a baseball glove, throwing a baseball up at the ceiling for hours at a time, waiting for the dang phone to ring. And it, and it finally does. And it's the New York Yankees. And, um, you know, they welcome you to the Yankee family and you know, can't wait to see you in pinstripes. And, you know, I hung up the phone. And my parents said, well, who was it? What happened? And I said, well, what's the one team you don't want me to say? <laughs> they said, oh, the Yankees. And then they said, well, what round, you know, and I said, I have no idea. Like, I didn't ask any of those questions. I was yeah. just so absolutely humbled and, and thrilled to have the opportunity. Um, and so, you know, you're on this real, this emotional high and adrenaline kicks in and then you realize, well, it's a business. You know, I haven't signed a contract yet. They haven't made me an offer yet. You know, and all those, these little, you know, I keep talking about, you know, your confidence ebbs and flows and I was on on top of cloud nine, and then I then I learned that I was the second player they drafted that year, behind Derek Jeter, um, which seemed like a good pick at the time, um, the the Jeter pick, not the Buddy pick. <laughs> you know, and then two weeks later, I'm in a, a mini camp in Tampa, Florida, and I look around, and there's 63 other right-handed pitchers, and they all throw 93 miles an hour, and I'm like, man, this is gonna be this is gonna be a tough road. Like, there's only there's only six right-handed pitchers on the major league roster, and there's 63 in this room. Not to mention the guys who are already off playing in AAA, AA, and single A. Um, so it's a, uh, but to answer your question, getting that call on the day of the draft was, was pretty special. And, uh, you know, that was, that was a, a day to remember. Yeah. And, and we touched a little bit on, on confidence and just, I think one of the most important things, especially in athletics, not just in athletics, but in life is just having a confidence and belief in your abilities, which comes from preparation, comes from hard work. What was it like when you get, to, you know, let's just say getting in the minor leagues and going through that battle of kind of working your way up. How did that, was there adversity along the way that kind of uh, you had to overcome certain challenges that you remember? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the opposing team is, is always a challenge, right? Yeah. You, you get instant feedback. As a, as a pitcher on the mound, 60 feet away from some, some grown men, by the way, in the middle of the steroid era, um, I'll quick to, be quick to point out, Okay. Like it's scary, right? And so, you know, I, I remember back in the days, my parents, um, you know, my dad was still teaching and, you know, they were back in Cleveland, Ohio, and they would say, hey, every night after you pitch, like call us. I was a starting pitcher. So every fifth day, they knew that I was going to give them a call after the game. I was calling them collect on a payphone, you know, on from the side of the road somewhere. And they knew the later in the evening that it got before I called, the worse I had done, because those were calls that I dreaded making, right? I, I, I'd come straight off the mound to the tunnel and pick up the phone when I threw seven and two thirds, no runs, eight strikeouts. Um, but it was, um, there wasn't one, again, the, the biggest challenge for me, I never got too discouraged because as long as you were healthy, you know, you had a shot. And as the second player drafted in 92, I was given um, more opportunities. Like, you know, I was always the opening night pitcher. And, and a lot of that is just based on, on pecking order and investments. Mm -hmm. I had two roommates that were both right-handed pitchers who, who frankly, every year had better statistics than I did. Um, but I was, I kept, was given precedence. Now they threw 87, 88, um, with a, with a breaking ball. And I threw 93, 94 with two or three different off-speed pitches. So my results weren't there, but, um, but I knew that the Yankees viewed me as an investment. They were giving me the benefit of the doubt and I was healthy. And so as long as you have those three things, um, and, you know, you keep your nose clean, like doing the little things matters uh, in any job that you have. Mm -hmm. And, and baseball is no different, right? If you, if you know the bunt defenses, if you know the pickoff plays, if you're not getting arrested on the weekends, like all of those things matter, especially um, when the ultimate goal is 
for you to be unattended in New York City, getting paid a lot of money to represent a, a brand that's that's worldly renowned. And so all of those things um, were kind of on my side. Yeah. And ultimately, you have an, an opportunity to actually, you know, make the Yankees team. You guys wound up winning a World Series. Is that correct? Um, yeah. So it's incredible experience being at the pinnacle of professional baseball. Talk about what what was the culture like when you're on a team at that level? Um, what were the things that people do in and out on a daily basis that enable people to achieve um, success at that level? Well, um, so it was all in the approach. So, so the culture was driven by really good leadership. Now, Joe Torrey was our manager and, and great, great, very transparent, good communicator. But, but the culture was driven by the, the, the leaders on the team. And so it was a unique time. 1998 was my rookie year. And we had this great mix of, of guys who had done great things at a young age, been humbled, right? So David Cohn, um, Daryl Strawberry, Chili Davis, Tim Raines, all of the, they were all in their 15 to 20, 20th year in the major leagues. And all of them had some documented issues when they were 19, living in LA or New York, $10 million contracts, you get into some trouble. And so they all had a great um, a humility about them where they, had, they learned that um, having regrets is not a good thing. And then you mix that with this influx of young talent of you know, Derek Jeter and Jorge Posada and Andy Pettit and Mariano and Bernie Williams were just very gifted players and so it was a great locker room um, the veterans kind of stayed back and kept their mouth shut until they saw something and the minute you saw something they would let you know about it um, it's kind of like being at West Point I mean, you know the the culture here is you don't if you ignore something then you're condoning it and and these guys knew that you can't condone corrosive behaviors inside the locker room and so so the culture was great the attitude and the energy every day, to, to be on a team, and you've probably experienced this at some level in your life, whether it's 12-year-old playing basketball or whatever it is, if you come to the, to the facility and you fully expect to win, it's amazing the impact that that has. And you can't fake your way through it. But, but that team in 1998, we went 125 and 50. We expected to win every night. And not only did we expect to win, you could sense the opposing team, if they were winning three to two in the sixth inning, you could almost feel them thinking, well, we have the lead, but we, we all know we're not going to win this game, you know, and you just get a little tentative and, and we kept responding and, and finding ways to win those games and some phenomenal win streaks. And um, so the culture, uh, again, the, the better leadership you have within the ranks, the less the, the owners have to do. And I try to build that in my athletic department. If, if I have to inject myself every time and say, hey, we've got to do this better. We've got to fix this. We need to do this. You know, then it's not a great culture because all the people at the, the middle and upper levels are already taking care of those things for me. And so, you know, if I came to, if I came to Yankee stadium late one day, Joe Torrey didn't have to grab me and say, Hey, Hey dummy, you need to be here early because David Cohn had already done it. And Dwight Gooden had already done it and said, Hey man, you're a 27 year old rookie. You know, you, you, you want to stick around here. You don't show up 10 minutes before stretch. Right. And so it was just a, um, it was a respectful, um, successful professional organization. Yeah, there was like a standard that's set that everyone abides by, that there's expectations and it's more of just this mentality approach that that's what you're, you're expected to do. Yeah, yeah, and there wasn't, there wasn't like a king. You know, it was, it was just a team where everybody knew their job and, you know, Derek Jeter was 
all kinds of special at that time, but he was only in his third year in, in the major leagues. And then you got these guys who had been, been there and understood what it took to win now. You know, it was, um, it, it wasn't, uh, it was not a, a fiefdom where you had to, it was just kind of like, hey, everybody here knows that I'm replaceable. And so, you know, you, they just went to work and, and tried to do their jobs. Yeah. So did you and, and Derek Jeter, did you guys go up in the ranks kind of together being in the same draft class and kind of going at, at the same speed? Um, for three years, we did. So okay. for three years, we played together. Um, well, my first year was only out in New York and then Greensboro and then Tampa. And then um, the second half of the year at Tampa, uh, Derek went to double A and, and ultimately ended up in triple A that year. I stayed in A-ball the whole time. So, and then that next year I went to double A and he, he made his debut and um, he took off from there. And it took me two and a half more years to even get to the big leagues. He had already established himself as a, as a decent player by that time. Yeah. Yeah. He's obviously a very good player. And obviously you, you both were drafted very high. So you had a lot of, um, you know, belief in you from the Yankees organization, also expectation. So, you know, but one of the things I think I remember reading his book a long time ago, uh, early on when he wrote it, but he struggled a little bit when he first got into it. Um, and just, you know, there's a different level that you, you reach into and, and kind of just that overall daily mentality, the approach. And so, he wasn't, he was Derek Jeter, but he wasn't Derek Jeter at the time. He's just another guy that was trying to work and get to the next level and get to the next level. And so I'm sure it was uh, interesting to be able to be around that as a, more so as a teammate and a friend, I'm sure. Um, but obviously he's had you know success um, at a high level. Well, and coming from a much different background. So, so, you know, we, I mentioned earlier, my freshman year of college, I had to learn about nutrition and lifting weights and balancing all these other things. And guess what? Like I didn't have any money. You know, I didn't have, I wasn't living in New York city. And so, you know, when I got drafted, the majority of our draft class were kids like me, juniors in college. So we were all 21. We could go to a bar after the game. Well, he wasn't right. He signed straight out of high school. And so he had a big bank account, had never been a freshman in college to kind of learn some, some, um, some hard lessons. Mm -hmm. So he was having to go through that with a bunch of older guys who, by the way, were probably a little bit jealous of, of the kid who just signed the big contract. And so, yeah, he was he was homesick and he was coming out of Kalamazoo, Michigan, similar climate to Cleveland, where mm -hmm. he was playing 40 baseball games a year. And, you know, if you go 0 for 5 in one game in high school, like that, that's a big deal. Going 0 for 5 on a Monday in the minor leagues is nothing because you're going to get five at bats on Tuesday. Yeah. So. Yeah, he had he had to learn a lot of a lot of things at once um, within this greater, you know, all the all the other things that he dealt with as a, as a human being, being a, a mixed race high school athlete. And, you know, it was kind of just even more impressive to see the type of, of player and person that he became because he was he had a lot of early challenges and just a great, great example of overcoming adversity is often worth it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you had a, a great career playing professionally, obviously, you know, winning the World Series and whatnot. And then obviously, um, I did want to touch on this, but we might just transition. I want to I want to touch on leadership and overall just uh, what you're doing today. But you got a chance to be in uh, in a movie acting career, right? <laughs> I was in a movie. I wouldn't say I had an acting career. But OK, you got you got to be in for the love of the game a little bit, which was I'm sure was a very unique experience. Um, what was that like real quick? 
Yeah, it was great. And so this was at the end of my rookie year. So, you know, it was 1998 was a good year in the buddy household, right? I mean, yeah. uh, <laughs> my wife and I got married in 96. So 98, we find ourselves, we're living in Manhattan, playing for the Yankees, the, they, the team that sets the most wins in the history of Major League Baseball. And then the season ends and this opportunity fell into my lap. Um, George Steinbrenner at the time, he, he wanted people wearing the pinstripes on the, in this, in this um, movie. He wanted them to actually look and seem like baseball players. So he mandated that, hey, if, if you're going to have three actors, you got to have 10 real athletes or baseball players. And so, yeah, so it fell into my lap. So the World Series ends. The next day, I'm moving into the Waldorf Astoria in downtown New York on Park Avenue, going to Yankee Stadium every day to film this movie. And, and it was like six weeks. And I'm in the movie for less than three seconds. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was a great way to kind of have a reason to live in New York City, um, rent free for a, a, you know six or seven weeks, and great stories to to grow up. And then the movie came out, and I was just like, yeah, it was okay. <laughs> yeah, what an awesome experience, though. So obviously, you wound up getting out of baseball, uh, retiring, and, and moving back down. I think uh, you went to Wake Forest first, and then obviously you became the athletic director at Furman, and now at Army West Point. You know, talk about what it's like to be a leader of the organization as a whole, overseeing all the athletic coaches, staff, organization, scheduling, all those things, what has it been like for you? And why did you decide to get into athletic, uh, the athletic department? Yeah. So, you know, honestly, Bailey, I remember when I got that call from the Yankees in 1992, I remember thinking, you know, I've got a Wake Forest education, although I hadn't graduated, right. I left after my junior year. Um, I remember thinking, you know, I'll trick them for a couple of years and then they'll realize I'm not that good, but hopefully you know, I can get three or four years in the minor leagues under my belt, develop relationships and either become a coach or a front office. And then I ended up playing for 13 years, um, you know, had a, had a decent career, but never really got a payday. And so, you know, I retired. Well, I didn't retire. I had, I had Tommy John surgery in 2004. That was it for my baseball career. I had a wife. I had two children. I had a mortgage and I had to, to knock out a full semester of college education as a, as a 34 year old. So you know, you have that moment like, oh crap, like I've got a lot, I got a lot of life left and I need to figure this out. Um, and then by that point, every coach that I had kind of looked up to was either divorced or out of the game. And, you know, I went back to college. I took 20 credit hours. I had to pay for it myself. Um, I hung around the baseball coaches and talk, talked about coaching. And, you know, as you know, college coaches, they work nights and weekends. And I had a four-year-old and a one-year-old and I, and I wanted to see them. And so I fell into, um, I actually took a job as a fundraiser for the business school at Wake Forest, did it, did it for one year and then transitioned into the athletic department, raising money, um, kind of cliche, you know, the, the, the old washed up athlete that goes back to his alma mater and asks people for money. And, and I did it for four years and I was actually pretty good at it, but it, but it, it wasn't, rewarding. I wasn't passionate about it. I, I wanted to be in college athletics to be around young people. And that's not what I was doing. I was, I was around old people, you know, buying them dinner and playing golf with them. And um, so I was, I was able to shift gears. I had a candid conversation with the athletic director and I said, I think I want to do what you do, but I'm not even sure what it is you do. Um, and, you know, I was having been playing in football and baseball as, a, as in team sports, you know, there are so many life lessons that you learn if you're a good teammate. Um, you know, I was a captain of some of my teams. And so it's really a, a nice transition into being a, a leader in the athletic department. And the things we talked about with the New York Yankees and 
shoot, St. Ignatius high school football team, like just the things that you learn about being a good teammate, treating people with dignity and respect, finding other people who are kind of on the fence and making sure you pull them onto the side of, hey, we can be great. The, the, the same things that I do here at Army West Point, the things that I tried to do at Furman, which is identify people that are on your team and make sure that they're in a position to, of strength to capitalize on their talents. Um, you don't have people who are really good at raising money. You, you don't want them worrying about compliance, you know, and just so some of it's common sense, but at the end of the day, you know, life is short. We, we work long, hard hours. Coaches are very high stress because of all the demands and the expectations. And so you got to have a good balance of, of um, exceptionally talented people, but also just people that are, are transparent and fair and communicate well. And, you know, we have a lot of hard conversations, but the worst thing, you know, here's what coaches hate. Coaches hate maybe. You know, if you're, if you're recruiting somebody, the best answer you can get is yes. The next best answer is no. The worst answer you can get is maybe, maybe. or not yet, because then, then you have to stay invested. And so as administrators, it's the same thing. You know, if, if the answer is going to be no, you're not going to get $500,000 for a new video board, then let's have that conversation and shift gears to say, here's an alternative that we might be able to accomplish. And so, you know, it's just having those types of conversations and having the vision and, um, you know, personality to be able to, to get people to believe in, in your vision. Yeah, absolutely. You feel like you're kind of always been a visionary type of person? Um, no, no. And honestly, when you're an employee at Wake Forest, I was coming up, like you, I was so pack mule focused on, I need to make 13 calls this week. I need to raise $100,000 this week. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't have the ability to, to see that. And so when I had the conversation with the AD, that was when it started to shift, like, oh, there's other teams in our conference and there's other employees at those schools who might be able to help me. And now, certainly, I feel like I've grown into a certain visionary leader. It sounds um, a little bit pompous, but like at West Point, we, we can't follow a manual like we, we can't try to do what Clemson and, and Alabama are doing to be successful because it's Apple's to bookmarks is not even the same, close to the same thing. Sure. So I have to, especially in, in how timely because conference realignment is happening right in front of our face. We're now paying athletes for name, image, and like, so all these things, like it's a new, a whole new horizon out there. And so, you know, I feel uniquely positioned because we've had to be creative and innovative and do what's best for West Point instead of trying to do what other schools are doing. So great opportunity, but I, I didn't start this way. I mean, I had to grow into it and I've, I've made plenty of bad decisions. Um, and you probably learn as much from those as you do for, for the good decisions you make. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's an interesting time in our business. Yeah, absolutely. I know we need to wind down. Um, one thing I was going to ask you, you touched upon how, you know, your, your wife was very important to you and, and making the decision that you didn't want to coach because of the hours that were put in and you all, all saw, um, you know, people within, kind of organizations of professional baseball that really they were divorced or whatnot. How did you decide, you know, what does it mean to be a good husband, to be a good father? And what does that look like for you? Oh, well, um, you know, I'm sure I've fallen short all the time in those areas, but, but to me, it's showing up. And I remember being a young, a young father, still playing professional baseball. Um, it, it, people get this, you know, the concept of being a parent is so much more daunting than actually being a parent. And so for me, it was um, 
being present when you're present, you know, being where your feet are. Uh, it's easy for coaches and administrators to go home for dinner, but your mind is still at the office or, you know, on a contract negotiation, whatever it may be. So to me, it's, uh, and, and honestly, like my wife to this day is she's, she is my most um, reliable sounding board. She's my truth teller. And, and a big part of it is she, she has no con, she never understood pitching, never understood baseball. And that it, it's funny, but that made her so much more valuable because I would come home and say, you know, my year, my ERA went up two points and our win loss. And, you know, three hours later, she'll be like, what's an ERA? And you realize, you know what, to most of the world, it doesn't matter. Who cares what my ERA was in May of 1996 in Norwich, Connecticut? To me, it was everything. Um, so, you know, to be, to be grounded um, for, you know, to me, being a husband is um, knowing who your best friend is, uh, making sure that, that that person is who you're going to for advice on the things that really matter. And for me, that's always been my, my wife. And then as a parent, um, my kids know that I'm going to miss some stuff, but being able to minimize what you miss and then making sure that when you're there, you're there mentally and physically. Um, and again, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's, if you ask them, uh, there's a lot of times that, that they wish that I would have been there physically too. And, and I'm sure when I'm there physically, I'm not always there mentally. But, uh, but again, just showing up and being there physically for, for your family is, is really important in, in our business. Absolutely. This podcast is called Building Excellence. What does building excellence mean to you? So, um, you know, excellence is, is a great vague word. You know, excellence and expectations are two words that people in our business kind of get concerned with because everybody defines it differently. So for me, excellence is um, coming, up a, coming up with a way to exceed your own expectations and your own potential. And so we talk about uh, the need to win, right? And in the Army as a whole, the United States Army, they talk about people first and winning matters because you don't, get, you don't get a silver medal in a war, right? Combat, you either win or you lose. And it's so appropriate for our business. We keep score of everything. But here's the beauty of it. We talk about um, preparing to win is almost as important as winning. And in our internal staff, we talk about what's the best possible outcome. For example, if our golf team got the opportunity to go to the NCAA tournament, it would be phenomenal. Our golfers are great young men, they're great soldiers, but they don't practice 27 hours a week on their short game, like the best teams in the country do. And so for, for us to say, hey, excellence for you is winning a championship, that's not fair. Excellence for them is if your score average this year was 74, it would be amazing if you got it down to 71. And so defining excellence here is what is, what, what is your God-given gift and how can you get the most out of that gift? And so we ask our, our young people to do that across the spectrum in their academics, in their military training, and in their, in their athletic uh, training as well. And you hope to exceed your own expectations. And so that's, that's probably the, the simplest way for me to explain excellence. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about kind of your story, your experiences, and, and obviously the things you talk about are things that you actually do as a leader. And so um, that's very apparent uh, being underneath you at Furman and, and obviously seeing you and excelling as you go to Army and West Point and doing all those things. So thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to do it, Bailey. It's great to see you. Many continued successes of your own. 
Hey everyone, it's Bailey Miles. Thanks again so much for tuning in. We hope you found value in the show. And if you enjoyed it, we would really appreciate you sharing the show with a friend, subscribing on Apple or Spotify podcast, writing a quick review, or leaving a five-star rating. When you do that, it really helps get the message out and allows more people to hear these stories and help them build excellence in their life, leadership, and legacy. If you have any questions, thoughts, or ideas, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email. It's bailey at baileymiles.com. Follow us on social. We're on all the different social platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Or check out our website at baileymiles.com. Once again, I'd love to hear from you, so definitely do that. And then thanks again for joining me on this journey. And remember, life begins at the end of your comfort zone.